0: In an earlier lecture, we briefly examined the the development of international labor law, its historical background, its purpose and scope, its official and unofficial sources, and the factors that influence it. Today, we are focusing on the implementation of international labor law and its monitoring system. What does implementation imply? When international conventions and fundamental principles and rights at work are respected, a person is free to receive an education instead of performing harmful child labor. He or she has access to economic opportunities and training. He or she may, without fear of reprisals, join a trade union or an employer's association that can bargain collectively for conditions that lead to workplaces with higher productivity And better pay. He or she can work reasonable hours under safe conditions and benefit from Social Security protection in case of need. When ratified conventions are not respected, the negative consequences can be extreme. Human trafficking for forced labor, the worst forms of child labor, perfidious discrimination and exploitation. As the UNDP-supported Commission on the Legal Empowerment of the Poor concluded in 2008, recognition and enforcement of the rights of individual workers and of their organizations is critical for breaking the cycle of poverty. ILO conventions, that is the treaties that are adopted by the 183-nation-strong International Labour Organization, are the central element of international labour law. They are shaped not just by representatives of governments, but as well of organizations representing employers and workers. These non-state actors play important roles, both within the ILO monitoring system and in the context of transnational collective agreements and corporate responsibility initiatives which can, in their way, contribute to the implementation of transnational labor law. To return now to treaties, the application of certain labor rights also occurs through other human rights instruments that have their own monitoring mechanisms. Examples for many are the Convention on the Rights of the Child, and the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. Where such instruments have protocols that provide for communications from individuals and or groups, these provide additional avenues for vindicating selected rights at work. The ILO and various other international organizations exchange information with a view to avoiding inconsistency in the way related standards are interpreted. ILO member states must submit any convention or recommendation that is adopted by the International Labor Conference to their national authorities. This is for possible ratification or for other legislative or other action. When a country voluntarily chooses to ratify an ILO convention, it undertakes to quote, take such action as may be necessary to make effective its provisions." This has been a feature of the ILO Constitution since it was adopted as Chapter 13 of the Treaty of Versailles in 1919. Over the years, the ILO has developed a system of monitoring of international labor standards that overall has won much praise. The ILO, in fact, won the Nobel Prize in 1969. This system is anchored in six features. First, the use of impartial external expertise to produce independent, objective and reliable legal analysis based on official sources and detailed preparatory work by the International Labour Office. Second, tripartism which implies reporting by governments and comments by employers and workers' organizations. In addition to engaging in tripartite discussion, these organizations can also submit representations and complaints. Third, dialogue and partnerships seek solutions to problems of implementation by the countries themselves, with support from direct contacts, social dialogue, and technical cooperation. Fourth, unlike many other human rights monitoring arrangements, there is no requirement to exhaust domestic remedies before going to the ILO. Fifth, rather than having separate monitoring arrangements for each convention, all of them are subject to a single set of constitutionally based standards supervisory procedures. And finally, some aspects of ILO monitoring occur for member states even in the absence of ratification. Several of these features are unique to the ILO. The supervisory mechanisms for monitoring the implementation of ILO standards fall into two categories. First, the reporting procedures, these are sometimes called regular supervision. And second, we have representations and complaints which are referred to as special procedures. Among the regular procedures, Article 22 of the ILO Constitution provides for annual reports by ratifying states on the measures they have taken to give effect to the provisions of ratified conventions. To reduce the reporting burden on governments, The ILO governing body has over the years extended the intervals for such reports on up-to-date conventions. It now requests them every five years for most conventions and every three years for priority conventions that deal with fundamental principles and rights at work and with governance issues. Initial reports on the application of a convention are to provide full information in relation to the government's steps that it has taken to give it effect. Subsequent reports can just indicate changes and are much shorter. In recent years between 65 and 70 percent of the reports requested under Article 22 of the Constitution were received on time from governments. While this is less than ideal it compares quite favorably to other human rights reporting procedures. Governments are required to provide a copy of their reports to representative organizations of employers and of workers in their country. When comments are made on the application of ratified conventions, or when the supervisory machinery recommends it, reports can be requested at shorter intervals. The report forms approved by the Iowa Governing Body request information on both law and practice but governments usually provide information only about legislation and sometimes court decisions. What happens to these regular reports? They are reviewed by two bodies, the Committee of Experts on the Application of Conventions and Recommendations, which was set up in 1926, and the Committee on the Application of Standards, which the International Labor Conference establishes each year. The 18 to 20 experts, who are all eminent jurists, hail from various regions, legal systems, and cultures. Acting on recommendations of the ILO Director General, the ILO Governing Body appoints the experts to three-year terms. Their role is to make an impartial, technical evaluation of the state of application of international labor standards and of the observance by Member States of their reporting obligations. The Committee of Experts meets in camera in a two-week session, usually held in December. After examining government reports and any comments that employers or workers' organizations may have sent, the Committee of Experts makes comments of its own. These may take the form of either direct requests or observations. Observations are published in the Committee's annual report, which normally appears in February. Direct requests involve more technical questions and include requests for further details from the government. Direct requests are not published, but a list of them appears in the Committee of Experts' reports. The use of direct requests gives countries time to clarify a situation and to tackle problems on their own before comments are published as observations. As part of efforts to improve the impact of international labor standards, the Committee of Experts has made its hefty report more reader-friendly. For instance, they now place comments under thematically grouped conventions. It has also defined criteria for cases of progress that involve changes in law and practice. The committee uses particular terms to denote different degrees of appreciation of a situation. Using its own vocabulary, the committee expresses satisfaction when a government has responded to earlier comments by taking appropriate measures. This could include changing a law or a practice with the result of significantly greater conformity with their obligations under a convention. The committee expresses interest when it sees measures such as draft legislation, ongoing consultations with the social partners in the country, new policies, activity in the context of a technical cooperation program, and where it wishes to engage in further dialogue with the government on the issue. In more neutral comments, the committee observes or notes facts or statements. Where it identifies serious or continuing shortcomings in the application of a Convention, it uses special notes. These were traditionally referred to as footnotes and they are reserved for so-called special cases. These may request a detailed report before a shorter report would normally be due or they may ask the government to provide full information to the International Labour Conference This speeds up the monitoring process. In recent years, around 65 to 70 states have received the first type, and 6 to 10 have received the second type. This shows that reporting to the conference is reserved for quite serious matters. The Committee of Experts report is placed on the agenda of the annual conference in June. Each year, the International Labour Conference sets up an Applications Committee to discuss the Committee of Experts report. First, it examines the General Report, which overviews uh, obligations regarding to submission and other matters. Second, the Applications Committee examines selected cases from among the observations the Committee of Experts has made on individual country reports under Article 22. Finally, the Applications Committee looks at the general survey that has been done under Article 19 of the ILO Constitution. We will come back to that topic. The choice of cases to be discussed at the conference, i.e., the observations based on Article 22 reports, is made shortly before the event. The Applications Committee can discuss a case even if the government in question has chosen not to participate in the discussion, although normally they do appear. Most often, the Conference Committee agrees by consensus on conclusions, recommending that a government take certain steps to remedy a problem. The Committee may encourage the government to seek a direct contact mission from the ILO which permits a high-level tripartite dialogue in the country, or it may suggest that the government request technical assistance to revise its legislation or take other steps that would address the problem of non-compliance. Situations in which the conference committee expresses special concern are highlighted by footnotes. A recent innovation in the Committee's practice has been to include several cases of progress in their discussions. This allows highlighting of good practice as well as serious failures to comply with ratified conventions. The reports of the Applications Committee go to the plenary of the conference for adoption. They are then made available to the Committee of Experts as a further source of information for it to examine at its next session. The ILO supervisory system also foresees the filing of representations and complaints. These have been instrumental in casting a spotlight on serious human rights violations in the world of work. Under articles 24 and 25 of the Constitution any industrial association of employers or of workers may present a representation against any member state that it asserts has failed to secure in any respect the effective observance within its jurisdiction of any convention to which that state is a party. This procedure is not open to individuals or NGOs other than employer and worker organizations. If the representation meets the criteria for receivability defined by the governing body, it will set up an ad hoc committee composed of one representative each of employers, workers and governments to examine the representation and the response of the government concerned. The report of this tripartite committee examines the information from a legal and practical point of view and concludes with findings and recommendations that are submitted to the ILO governing body. Where the government's response is not considered satisfactory, the governing body may publish the report and the response. Up to the year 2010, 116 representations involving 55 governments had led to recommendations by ad hoc tripartite committees. Most have come in the last 30 years, probably reflecting the greater awareness of rights at work as human rights. When a representation concerns the application of conventions number 87 or 98 on freedom of association and collective bargaining, the Governing Body may refer these aspects to its Committee on Freedom of Association. We will return to that Committee in a a moment. In addition to representations, complaints are foreseen by the Constitution under its Articles 26, to 34. A complaint alleges that a state is not securing the effective observance of a convention that it has ratified. A complaint of this nature may be filed by a delegate to the International Labor Conference, by the ILO governing body, or by another state that has ratified the same convention in line with principles of reciprocity. The ILO governing body may then appoint a Commission of Inquiry to consider a complaint and report on it. Or it may take other action such as asking the Director General to designate a special representative. Other Member States are to place at the disposal of a Commission of Inquiry any information they have which bears on the subject matter of the Article 26 complaint. Most of the complaints filed in recent years have originated with International Labour Conference delegates. Up to early 2011, commissions of inquiry had been established to handle 12 complaints involving allegations against 13 member states of the ILO. Complaints under Article 26 involve the general interest there is no need to show direct harm to the complainant. Commissions of inquiry are composed of three members who are named by the governing body on the proposal of the Director General. They take an oath that mirrors the one taken by judges of the International Court of Justice. Each commission of inquiry defines its rules regarding evidence and examination of witnesses. It can visit a country if the government agrees, but the country's refusal does not stop the Commission's work. The report of a Commission of Inquiry includes findings on all questions of fact and recommendations as to the steps to be taken to meet the complaint within a specified frame time. This is provided by Article 28 of the Constitution. A Commission of Inquiry may charge the Committee of Experts with verification of whether the Commission of Inquiry recommendations have been followed or not. Discussions of a complaint in the ILO governing body afford an opportunity for the government in question to participate in the discussion. The Commission of Inquiry report is published and communicated to all governments concerned. Within three months they are to inform the Director General of the ILO whether or not they accept the Commission's recommendations and if not whether there will be a referral of the complaint to the International Court of Justice. So far none has made such a referral. The decision of the International Court of Justice in regard to a complaint or its follow-up under Article 29 of the Constitution is final. Article 33 of the ILO Constitution empowers the Governing Body to recommend to the Conference such action as it may deem wise and expedient to secure compliance with the recommendations of the Commission. This broad wording was adopted in a constitutional amendment in 1946, which replaced a reference to sanctions of an economic nature. In the year 2000, the International Labor Conference invoked Article 33 of the Constitution for the first time. It adopted a resolution calling for a number of measures in relation to recommendations made to a country that had failed to implement the Commission of Inquiry's findings regarding the country's non application of the Forced Labor Convention. Convention number 29. Later, in cooperation with the government, an internal complaints mechanism and liaison officer were put in place. Implementation of the Commission of Inquiry's recommendations continues to be under review by the conference and the ILO governing body. Beyond what can occur under Article 29 of the Constitution, this founding document also provides, in Article 37, that any question or dispute relating to the Constitution or an ILO Convention shall be referred to the International Court of Justice. It also says that the ILO may make rules for the appointment of its own tribunal, but this is an option that has not yet been used. In addition, the International Labour Organization itself is empowered to seek an advisory opinion on a legal question under Article 65 of the Statute of the International Court of Justice, Article 9 of the Agreement between the United Nations and the ILO, and Article 37 of the ILO Constitution. The predecessor of the International Court of Justice, the Permanent Court of International Justice, rendered five advisory opinions involving the ILO. Four of them concerned its competence and procedures, and one, in 1932, interpreted the Convention of 1919 concerning employment of women during the night. But far more frequent than advisory opinions, representations, or complaints um, are complaints in the ILO that allege violations of the principles of freedom of association. These principles go to the core of the ILO's functioning and mandate. For this reason, special procedures have been created. Over the years these procedures have resulted in many changes in legislation and in the freeing of trade union activists and of some employer representatives from detention related to their organizational activity. The Freedom of of Association Special Procedures began in January 1950, when the ILO governing body established the Fact-Finding and Conciliation Commission. This decision was approved by the UN Economic and Social Council, which decided to accept the services of the ILO for any issue relating to freedom of association. To date, this commission has handled only six cases. However, since the governing body thought that a situation needed examination before referral to the commission, it set up its own Committee on Freedom of Association one year later. The Committee on Freedom of Association examines complaints about violations of Freedom of Association principles, whether or not the country in question has ratified the relevant conventions and whether or not the complainant organization of workers or employers is recognized by the government. Governments, other types of organizations and individuals may not lodge these Freedom of Association complaints. The Committee on Freedom of Association procedure is complementary to and is not a substitute for the regular reporting and possible complaints or representations we discussed before in the case of ratified conventions. An independent chair presides over the Committee on Freedom of Association, which has three representatives each of employers, workers, and governments. It works in camera and meets just prior to the governing body, three times a year. If the committee decides to receive a case, it establishes the facts in a written dialogue with the government involved. It may also choose to propose a direct context mission in which the government and the social partners in the country are consulted. Where the Committee on Freedom of Association finds a violation of Freedom of Association principles or standards, it issues a report. So far, it has always done this on the basis of consensus. It also makes recommendations to the ILO governing body about a particular case. By the time the Committee on Freedom of Association had celebrated its 50th anniversary in 2001, it had examined over 2,300 cases, some even involving torture and murder. The pressure that comes from its recommendations has led to the release of many detainees, some of whom have gone on to help their countries establish or restore democracy. In the past 25 years or so, more than 60 countries around the world have acted on the CFA's recommendations to improve respect for the principle in law. When the Committee on Freedom of Associations report is discussed in the governing body, the government involved in the case is free to make a statement but the CFA's findings remain unchanged. The governing body periodically asks the ILO to publish a digest of the Committee's decisions, which may also be consulted online. Under Article 19 of the ILO Constitution, other procedures also involve supervision of non-ratified instruments. In the case of ILO recommendations, or of conventions that a country has not ratified, the ILO governing body may call upon states to report from time to time on measures they have taken to give effect to specified instruments, and they are invited to indicate any obstacles that have prevented or delayed the ratification of a convention. Organizations of employers and of workers may also submit information relating to Article 19 reports from governments. The information on law and practice in these reports is distilled into what is called a general survey. General surveys often cover several related instruments and contain a lot of information on law and practice. The surveys provide feedback to the organization on the status of implementation as well as on the needs for more active promotion of instruments or for the revision of ILO standards. The ILO Declaration on Social Justice for a Fair Globalization, which was adopted by the International Labor Conference in 2008, invites member states to review their situation as regards the ratification or implementation of ILO instruments that deal with all four aspects of the Decent Work Agenda, that is, employment, rights at work, social protection, and social dialogue. Special emphasis is given to core labor standards and governance instruments. The latter are considered to be uh, conventions on employment policy, labor inspection, and tripartite consultation. The follow-up under this new declaration is leading to changes in the organization of the general surveys done by the Committee of Experts. A particularly significant procedure that was set up under Article 19 of the Constitution was the follow-up to another declaration, the ILO Declaration on Fundamental Principles and Rights at Work, which was adopted in 1998. This declaration concerns the obligation of member states whether or not they have ratified the conventions in question to respect, promote, and realize the following core principles. Freedom of association and the effective recognition of the right to collect bargaining, and the elimination of forced or compulsory labor, child labor, and discrimination in employment or occupation. The declaration follow-up, which involves a system of reporting that was slightly revised in 2010, has stimulated countries to look into their own situations in relation to these principles and has raised awareness of how shortcomings can hinder development when these principles are not fully respected. One of the main effects of this declaration and its follow-up has been the dramatically increased levels of ratification for the fundamental ILO conventions which are now almost universally ratified. Another has been more technical cooperation on the ground leading to a deeper understanding of how respect for these principles underpins decent work and sustainable equitable development. Overall, The ILO approach to monitoring the implementation of international labor standards and principles is a mixture of independent expert analysis and a political appreciation of a situation from a tripartite point of view. The Committee of Experts is noted for its independence, objectivity and impartiality. At other stages of the monitoring system involvement of non-state actors reinforces the system's real-world grounding and the dialogue that is involved in ILO monitoring. In practice, the system operates through a combination of fact-finding and legal analysis, diplomatic efforts, and moral urgings by ILO supervisory bodies. As the distinguished jurist Nicholas Valticos once put it. The supervisory system works through what he called the mobilization of shame. Today however, incentives for implementation could easily be added to that characterization. Regular reporting involves nudging over time, encouraging improvements and, when justified, making stronger calls for change can eventually bear fruit. Technical cooperation is there to support genuine political will on government's behalf. An external academic study of the ILO regular monitoring regime concluded in the year 2000 that the ILO's global benchmarking reduces the risks of defection from core international labor standards and thereby promotes a type of discursive multilateralism among member states. In addition, a monitoring function that was originally limited to ratified conventions can be seen as having grown in new ways to cover principles that arise purely from the belonging as a member to the organization. The Legal Issues and International Labor Standards Committee of the ILO governing body has adopted a standards policy that includes elements for raising the visibility of the supervisory system and streamlining streamlining, reporting procedures. The main critics of the current monitoring system are governments concerned about the burden of reporting, or governments whose efforts have not yet achieved full implementation of ratified conventions, or those whose practices have run afoul of the Committee on Freedom of Association. The promotional follow-up created under the 1998 ILO Declaration sparked concern that this would erode the regular supervisory system, but this fear has proved unfounded. Some academics also find fault with certain procedural aspects of ILO monitoring, or they criticize the heavy reliance on legislation over practice in the detailed work of the supervisory machinery. Currently, it is true that the Conference Committee has time to examine only a handful of the hundreds of observations made by the Committee of Experts each year. This has led some to ask whether the system can keep making minor adjustments or whether it needs a major overhaul. How, for instance, can the system better address persistent non-compliance with a fundamental convention? How can it assist governments to meet their obligations? Some of these questions the ILO is considering as it continues the evolution of its supervisory machinery. Additionally, the credibility of any supervisory system is linked to the capacity of the standards it is monitoring to respond to real contemporary needs. Thus the ILO's efforts to keep its body of labor standards up-to-date and relevant to all types of work settings is therefore critical as well for implementations, implementation issues of international labor law. A key element for improving the implementation of ILO standards is providing support for countries' efforts to implement them. How is this done? For its part, the ILO provides information, advisory services, direct contacts and sometimes good offices, technical cooperation in countries and work with other international organizations to encourage them to support policies that promote decent and productive work. Governments that are considering ratification of a convention sometimes contact the International Labor Office to seek clarification of a provision in relation to their national situation. The office after it recalls that the sole competence of providing interpretations via ILO conventions lies with the International Court of Justice does offer informal indications about the particular provisions of a convention and the office may draw attention to statements in the preparatory works for the convention that are relevant to the question the government has posed. Often, an ILO convention will indicate that it is to be implemented by laws and regulations or by other measures, which may include collective agreements, court decisions, arbitration awards, or other means consistent with national laws and practice. However, some provisions of conventions specify that legislation or regulations are needed to ensure their enforcement. Thus. If a country merely cites the fact of its ratification and points to its monist doctrine of automatic incorporation of international law into the domestic legal system, this will not be sufficient to give an effect to an ILO convention. Information about the application of ILO standards is available through the ILO website, www. ILO.org, and especially in the APLIS APP-LIS and ILOLEX, ILO-LEX databases. Uh, these contain various reports and information procedures, but the website also includes country profiles that focus on standards. Other ILO sources, such as labor law guidelines and the new employment protection database, also contain information relevant to implementation. Finally, although treaty-based international labor law is of course addressed to states, the private sector definitely has a role to play. Private sector initiatives that promote respect for rights at work and achieve better working conditions can influence the behavior of producers, traders, distributors, and retailers. In short, anyone along the supply chain for goods and services. The most effective of these involve multiple stakeholders, including the representatives of employers and workers, who understand the business case for implementing international labor standards. Serious corporate social responsibility initiatives are accompanied by independent verification and use market mechanisms to ensure compliance with fair trade practices. The UN Special Rapporteur on Business and Human Rights has recently made recommendations that give guidelines to business. The ILO has created a help desk for business on international labor standards. It is underpinned by the labor principles in the UN Global Compact and by the ILO governing bodies, tripartite declaration of principles concerning multinationals and social policy. The country-based system put in place under the OECD Multinationals Declaration and Guidelines for Multinational Enterprises also encourages better alignment of business operations with the agreed principles. Finally, upon request by a government, the ILO provides technical advice on drafting legislation and regulations that are in line with international labor standards. This function is specifically evoked under Article 10, Paragraph 2B of the Constitution. The involvement of representatives and employers of worker and of workers is critical to successful law reform since labor law in particular will work in practice only if it has their support. Given the importance of the informal economy in many countries, input from democratic organizations that represent such workers and or small entrepreneurs will be valuable in arriving at new legislation that reflects labor market realities. Ideally, Legislative reform for bene- should benefit from economic, sociological, gender and legal analysis, as well as use plain language drafting. Sound labor legislation embodies universal values in ways that fit the local labor relations culture. For the implementation of international labor law, domestic labor law must be backed up by enforcement mechanisms that work. To ensure access to justice, these need to be simple, rapid and low cost for employers and workers to use. The 2008 Declaration on Social Justice for a Fair Globalization highlighted the importance of effective labor inspection systems since they are linked to productivity and economic development. Applying the guarantees of independence and of adequate terms and conditions for employment of labor inspectors, which are contained in ILO conventions, can also help fight corruption and strengthen the rule of law. Unfortunately, a lack of resources for labor inspectorates, for mediation and conciliation services, for specialized labor courts, and for the collection of statistics and other labor market information is a major hindrance to the effective implementation of labor legislation. Technical cooperation initiatives involve partnerships between countries and international organizations that attempt to tackle a range of issues, including those related to the application of ILO conventions. For example, in a joint effort between the International Finance Corporation and the ILO The Better Work program has pioneered factory-level improvements to foster competitiveness. Overall, the fight against the worst forms of child labor has attracted the most donor support for country efforts to implement ILO Convention No. 182 on this topic. Technical cooperation for the implementation of conventions on other subjects includes strengthening occupational safety and health, respect for fundamental principles and rights at work, dispute resolution mechanisms, maritime labor standards, cooperatives, and protection of migrant workers, among other issues. The attainment of decent and productive employment, which is part of the Millennium Development Goal to reduce poverty is a major area for country-level employment promotion initiatives with special emphasis on youth. These can all contribute indirectly to the implementation of international labor law. Other examples are the multi-institutional Paris 21 initiative on strengthening statistical capability and the development of decent work indicators including those on rights. These draw on long experience with labor standards and labor statistics to provide improved measurement techniques in support of better planning. The ILO has also sponsored exchanges of experience among labor statisticians, labor inspectors, and labor court judges. The ILO International Training Center in Turin, Italy conducts courses for judges and inspectors on the use of international labor standards in national contexts. Other institutions concerned with human rights are also increasingly taking up issues involving selected labor standards. The full implementation of international labor law faces significant challenges. Sometimes they relate to a lack of political will but much more often implementation problems are linked to persistent poverty and weak capacity of governments. The ILO's range of field offices tries to promote government efforts to improve the situation. But inaction by government may also reveal a lack of policy options because a higher value seems to be placed on producing cheap goods than on ensuring decent work for the people who produce them. Both the ILO Constitution and the 2008 Declaration stress the importance of having financial and economic policies that are supportive of the implementation of fundamental principles and rights at work and ratified ILO conventions. The most recent financial crisis has opened up new avenues of cooperation and joint research with other organizations on these issues. A final challenge for the implementation of international labor law is that the ILO standards system and its monitoring are not very well known outside ILO circles. United Nations Audiovisual Library of International Law offers a welcome opportunity to heighten its visibility and thereby to contribute to the implementation of international labor law. Thank you very much.